Welcome to the Positive Turbulence podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick, your co-host. Most of us don't think about the so-called built environment, it's just there. But the design of the buildings you work, live, and play in is essential. So is the shape, quantity, and location of public spaces. It can add up to affect how you feel, how you connect with your community, and how the outside world perceives you. Hi, I'm Karen Zadinga, your co-host. Today we're exploring community and connectedness and the intersection of art and design with Daryl Condon, managing partner at HMCA Architecture in Vancouver, BC. Without knowing it, HMCA is the perfect case study for positive turbulence in action. Their artists in residence program, curiosity lab, and experiments like the Faraday Cafe and Alley Oop have garnered them international media attention. These initiatives are also a driving force to the firm's ongoing and outstanding creativity. If you want to get links to some of these projects, head over to PositiveTurbulence.com. We'll start with Daryl talking to us about why we should care about the social impact of the built environment right after our word from this episode's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by NextWaveInnovation.io. Working with small and medium-sized digital product companies in Vancouver and Seattle to help them define effective growth strategies. Learn more at nextwaveinnovation.io. Also, we'd like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme song, Late Night Sunrise, and other great music, visit macavenue.com. One of the things that I'm really motivated by is for us, those that create the built environment, to take our responsibility for social impact and the social impact of our work much more seriously. We believe that it's time to create the tools and the methodologies to understand, host conversations, and assess our impact from a social standpoint, much like we have over the last 25 years around the environmental aspects of sustainability through things like LEED and Living Building and many other systems. We're much better at understanding the environmental performance of our buildings. We need a collective action that really is about understanding and shaping our social impact as well. It's a huge void in the conversation. We're on our third generation social impact framework and that we use to frame our work and to, and to start our projects by setting not only environmental goals, but the corresponding social goals. And we're encouraging others to do the same and to participate. And I really believe that we need to leverage a collective act and a collective will to embrace the social side of of our impacts in the same manner that we've embraced the environmental impacts of, of what we do. That's fascinating. What are some of the metrics or the components of of social impact through design that you're measuring or considering? Yeah. So when you set out on maximizing your social impact, and of course you have to you have to start measuring it or understanding how to measure it, you, you very quickly learn that this is a very challenging yeah. territory. How do you measure laughter? How do you measure happiness? How do you measure community connectedness? Some of these things can be measured, and social scientists have ways, and they understand how to measure these these things over time. From a practical standpoint, in practice, it's very challenging to apply in our day-to-day work. So what we've learned is that there's certain aspects that we're not going to be able to measure. There's certain aspects that we're just certainly going to have to believe and, and be committed to. There are others that we can measure. We can measure performance of a building. We can go back over time and see how people are using that building. We can talk to the residents. We can talk to the users. We can understand how it's working. I believe it's going to be a combination of some things that can be measured and some things that can't. And a much 
longer commitment to understanding and measurement and assessment of building performance, not just when you hand over the keys, but really after a year, after five years, after 10 years, because social impacts play out over time. It's not something you can just you know, connect a device right. to and measure at a moment in time. They really unfold over a much longer period of time. We're going to have to learn how to understand that. We're going to learn, have to learn how to measure that and apply it to our work. I love it. That's fascinating. What makes you guys different? Like, what is this idea of integrated approach? What are you doing that's different? We're in the midst of a climate crisis. We understand that the collective impact of the built environment is one of the major contributors. And the way we've structured our communities is, is a major, major cause of, of the challenges that we're facing from a climate standpoint. There's just so many things that come together that cause us to, to recognize that you know, business as usual can't apply any longer. By bringing together different design disciplines, we've added communication designers, graphic designers. We have a fashion designer in the firm. At various times, we've had behavioral scientists and, and industrial designers. Bringing different skills together enable us to approach traditional problems with a different mindset to find more innovative solutions. How do you translate that into something at a community level? How do you help City Council X sign off on a particular development project that is about walkability? And These notions translate into our work in a number of different ways, at different scales. Within our traditional body of work and our traditional projects, we're bringing a, a different mindset. We're bringing a more comprehensive view of what success looks like. We're not just looking at the functional needs. We're not just looking at the environmental impacts. We're looking more, much more seriously at the social impacts as well. So we're, we're starting our projects by setting social goals for those projects and looking at ways to, to have much a deeper impact from a community building standpoint and also trying to understand how is it that we can go back and measure that and, and see the impact of that over, over time. And so that's within our traditional body of work. We're also recognizing that sometimes encouraging people to see their communities differently, which is really what is needed. You have to actually show, you have to demonstrate possibility and potential. We've been involved in a number of initiatives over the last number of years that are encouraging people to think differently about their communities and encouraging to think differently about the built environment. A couple of examples I can point to. One was a project that we've been involved with in collaboration with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association and the City of Vancouver. It's called More Awesome Now. It's an initiative where, we, where we've been taking service laneways and back alleys within the downtown core through very simple interventions and transformations, demonstrating public space potential in those underutilized spaces. And, and a city that, that is desperate for more public space, being able to demonstrate how we can see existing underutilized spaces in a more public way is an example of of causing change through actions and through demonstrating. I think I know one of those projects. There's a, a laneway right downtown that's very brightly painted. The first alleyway that we transformed, which we call Alley Oop, sometimes is known locally as the Pink Alley. We used a sports theme and we painted the surface on the ground, on the driving surface and on the side of the buildings. We installed some basketball hoops and various other sporting typology into the laneway, it's been remarkable to see how people's perception of that space has transformed. It's, it's, there's people in that space almost 24-7. It's become the, you know, in all the lists of top places to Instagram in Vancouver because it's very, it's very unusual. It's very strange to, 
to go into a into a back lane and and have all this this abundance of color and activity. But really, what it was about was starting a conversation, trying to get people to start thinking differently about these spaces. We've already seen the results of that. We've already seen more laneway transformations. We're seeing people look for other opportunities within other areas of the city as well. And in fact, recently there's been a development proposal that a local developer has has applied for permission to build a new building adjacent to Alley Oop. And not only are they recognizing the importance of that, they're amplifying and extending it and actually reinforcing that in the design of their, their building. So you can see even in that two years that that's been in existence, it's already shifted people's perceptions about what the possibilities are for those spaces. And so that's an example of working with local businesses, Business Improvement Association in the city to start a conversation. Sometimes that's a far more effective way to get people to embrace positive change because they can see it, they can feel it. And it's not through fear, it's really through opportunity and, and showing the possibilities. It's more than an awareness campaign. It's an experience campaign in a sense because you, you showed it. I mean, you did it, you, you created the environment and that attracts people. They want to replicate it. That makes perfect sense to me. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And it takes on a life of its own. People start seeing it in their, through their own eyes. And, and soon there's organizations that host parties there. And, you know, there's been a Korean K-pop group uh, shot a video there that's had 430 million views wow. on YouTube. <laughs> so you can see that these things take on a life of their own. It's, and you can't really anticipate so that. I, I have to take a moment here. I'm just imagining you as a the patron of K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> These things right now, they're two, they're two notions. I would never have thought, oh, there's a K-pop guy who's going to be uh, like yeah, you know. the backbone <laughs> of a video. So I just have to take a breath here. Yeah. I love that collision of ideas. This one little thing that you did has morphed and become something else that people are embracing it. And they may not even know where it came from. Yeah, and that's great. We don't do it for the attention. We do it to start a conversation. And one of the things that inspired us along this path, about five or six years ago, I got interested in embedding an artist in residence in our, in our firm. Why? Can I ask why? Like, what, what would make somebody who's the CEO of a, of a small architecture and design firm decide, oh, I know what we need. We need an art. Not only we need art. Art, okay, sure, I get having art. But no, no, we need an artist in residence because obviously... Well, doesn't everybody? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I, I, for some time, have felt that our, our traditional form of practice needs to be shaken up. It needs to be disrupted. And we need to open our minds to other ways of thinking. It started from a desire to inject other forms of creative thinking into our practice and, and to challenge it. It's really started from a desire for us to learn to be better at what we do through learning and by challenging ourselves to learn from other types of creative people. So it was an experiment. Our very first artist in residence is a social artist named Julian Thomas. And he came up with a really interesting idea for a pop-up cafe based on the principles of a Faraday cage, which if you're not familiar with a Faraday cage, it's, it's basically a mesh enclosure where cell phone signals can't penetrate. We came up with this idea of this pop-up cafe called Faraday Cafe in uh, Chinatown of Vancouver for two weeks in one July. But what was fascinating was before it even opened, we had all of the Canadian television networks. We had the BBC. We had Malaysian television. I can't even remember all of the different media companies from around the world asking us what was going on here. 
what we were doing was starting a conversation and asking people to think about their relationship with technology. Because this was a cafe where your cell phone couldn't work. So you had to actually talk to people. And we weren't doing it in a way that was judgmental about the technology. It was really asking people to reconsider and to think about their relationship with technology. This was this small little artisan residence thing, our little firm in Vancouver, a small little investment we were going to experiment with. And before we even opened, we had the, the, the media from around the world on our doorstep. Because of the shocking idea that you couldn't use your phone <laughs> at a cafe? <laughs> like, well, it, it ended what? up being this really timely conversation. But what was amazing was for this very small investment, what it taught us is that it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, anywhere in the world, you can start a global conversation or you can impact a global conversation. And we demonstrated that. For a couple thousand dollars and some sweat equity, we were able to start or encourage a global conversation. For us, that was incredibly motivating because we really believe in the catalytic effect. We can't change the world, but we can change our world. We can change our local, our local condition. And you never know what the ripple effect of, of that one simple change is. And it's the same way with, our, with the alleyway. You just never know what will happen when you start a conversation. So we really believe that. Once people see things differently, they can't unsee it. Once you start the conversation, you've disrupted things a little bit, shattered an old mindset, created some potential for the possible. And then when good things start to come out of it, how can you reinforce that so that it doesn't over time snap back to the way things were? You said you can't unsee it, but how can you add energy to kind of keep that turbulence you created positive? There's a lot of inertia in, in any organization and in, in any aspect of our life. You try to create a different path and, and there is that sort of force that's trying to bring you back onto the straight and narrow, if you will, right? You know, it's been interesting for us as we've transformed our company. It started with a real shared alignment and commitment from the partners. And all of us have been very committed to this path. And, and that was the first and most important aspect is that we've been willing to take that risk together. The other thing I would say is that it hasn't been for everyone. We've had people leave the organization that have said, you know what, I'm actually pretty comfortable with traditional practice. And we've wished them well, and they're better off in a, in a different mode of practice. At the same time, we've had so many people knock on our door locally and from around the world that have, that have said, you know what, we think you're onto something here. We think we want to be part of what you're doing. And that sort of injection of new thinking has actually been one of the things that's helped us continue in what can sometimes be a lonely place of, of innovation. We found that our staff, the people here, are quite motivated by taking on big questions and are quite motivated of making a difference in their community. And that's really helped us keep us exploring and keep us looking for different ways to contribute. How do you keep it fresh? How do you yourselves not fall into some habitual thing that then becomes the new way that isn't soon the old way? How do you not lose the energy? How do you keep stretching? Continuing to push and, and to stretch ourselves is, is a challenging thing and, and, and dynamic. It starts from a real curiosity that's deeply embedded in us and in our systems that we're building. We've established a curiosity labs within the firm, which, is, which has a mandate, which has leadership, which has a budget, where we've invested a portion of our profits into these types of initiatives. And it becomes a, a grassroots initiative. Many firms will say do a percent for pro bono, a percent for this, a percent for that. For us, a percent goes into this initiative. It's a staff-led 
and staff curated set of programs. For instance, our artists in residence program, we'll have three or four different artists that challenge us in different ways. And those artists are selected by our staff. And that keeps different voices and that keeps things fresh. There's some things that we do on a regular basis that we still find real value in. For instance, we have a monthly figure drawing session in our offices. We hire a model. We open it up to the creative community to come in and draw. We're finding that the traditions of creativity, the traditions of hand drawing are being lost. Not only do we create and encourage people to continue with the craft of hand drawing, but it creates a community as well. And so when we put our, you know, our uh, announcement out for our next figure drawing session, it sells out like almost instantaneously. We've got this huge list of people that look forward to this event. While we're doing the same thing every month, it still has real value. If we find that the community isn't interested in it, we shift our, our focus to, to something else. What I believe is really important in keeping these initiatives, these innovation and creativity injections into the firm relevant is that we're doing it for our own internal learning first and foremost. We're not doing it for attention. We're not doing it for anybody else's benefit except for our own learning. And I believe that as long as we keep the focus on what we will learn from these actions, that is what will keep it authentic. That's what will keep it alive. And as soon as we shift and if we see it as a, as a marketing vehicle or some way of telling a story about ourselves, when it ceases to be about us learning, I think it'll, I think it'll fail. Are you a small or medium-sized digital product business based in Vancouver or Seattle and worried about your business growth? Next Wave Innovation has got your back. We'll help you find the right path to get your business growing again. Check out nextwaveinnovation.io. That's nextwaveinnovation.io. We'll help you find that next wave to ride. I think it's a great idea, the Curiosity Labs. What, what other kind of projects have come out of that that keep stirring the pot? We've instituted what we call our Curiosity Framework, and that framework spans a whole range of issues within the firm, from our Curiosity Labs at one end, which is very open-ended, to our professional development, which is much more structured, and a variety of other things in between. We have things like internal bursaries, where we give an opportunity for staff to come forward with a research proposition that we will provide them with some resources and some time to, to take on, to external collaborations with, with academics and, and others. So a whole range of activities that really are about feeding that, that curiosity. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I got really interested in potential for partnership and collaboration in that kind of sense. Have you met some partners that have really contributed to the overall work that you're doing? And, and what are some examples of, of collaborations that have worked? We've created some really interesting relationships with other design disciplines. There's an interactive designer here in town called Tangible. They participated in our artist-in-residence program. We also, in one of our laneway transformations, they participated and we, through Kickstarter, we funded a public art installation that they, that they created. And we're now collaborating on a project with, with a client. So it's an example of, of an ongoing relationship with a really interesting creative company in, in Vancouver that has had many different forms within our structures and within our organizations. Collaborations with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association is another example of a not-for-profit organization representing the business interests that really is eager to think about the city and to find ways to, to bring people in and bring more life into the city as well. And so they've been a wonderful collaborator. 
We've been supporting a fascinating organization here in Vancouver called the Binners Project, which is working with people that make their living collecting cans and bottles and returning them. And they're providing supports and networking and infrastructure for these people to you know, have a better life and make a better living through binning. And they've been creating a, a cart share program. We've been supporting that through using our creativity, using our communications team, but also by hosting fundraising events for them that is enabling them to create their, their cart sharing program. So that's an example of, of using our skill set, but partnering with, with a really important community organization that's doing really impactful work. We can help amplify their efforts as well. That's great. Yeah. I was wondering about the, the downside of all of that. For instance, the alley projects. Did you get pushback about, well, you know, oh, it's not going to be safe. There's commercial vehicles that have to use those alleys. And now you're making them into play spaces and somebody's going to get hurt. I don't think you were involved in the bicycle lanes in Vancouver, but that's been, from my perspective, ridiculous in terms of pushback around creating space for cycling lanes. And I know that's a really common problem in a lot of cities in North America who are trying to create bike lanes is that you'll get pushback from business associations saying, oh, you can't do that because now you're taking parking space and I'm going to lose business. How are you navigating those potential conflicts? Like, so every time you try to bring these changes, I am certain that there's people out there saying, oh, no, you can't do that. There's always people that are going to resist change for lots of different reasons and some good and maybe some that we would disagree with. Our collaboration with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, I think, is such an interesting example of the business community shifting their perception. When bike lanes were being proposed in Downtown Vancouver, the DVBIA was one of the groups that were really opposed to them. They were very concerned about the negative impacts, potential negative impacts on businesses on on those streets. What they found in, in reality was that the businesses did better on those streets. And, and the organization actually are now one of the strongest advocates for bike lane. So that's an example of a business association that was looking at the facts, looking at the data and said, actually, you know what? Finding different ways for people to come downtown is good for business. They've been a huge proponent of thinking of the alleyways differently. And, and obviously, we have to accommodate the service vehicles. They're still there. They're still important. The initiatives that we did with the DVB were funded by the local businesses. They wanted to see change. One of the criticisms we had was from advocates for for homeless people that were suggesting that we were somehow disrupting what for some people is is where they would live or where they would sleep and that we were somehow pushing the homeless community out of these areas. And this was something that we were quite sensitive to and quite concerned about because it was the last thing we wanted to do was in effect gentrifying the laneways and and making them less hospitable for people that uh, live on the streets. Far from it. It was interesting, about a year after the first laneway was transformed, we were contacted by a student from the UK who's doing a master's and studying the impacts on homelessness of these types of transformations. She came into our office and also worked with the local community and interviews and did both qualitative and quantitative research on the laneways. And what was fascinating was that her analysis demonstrated that not only has the the amount of activity by homeless people increased in in the laneway, the nature of those activities has increased as well. And and through those interviews, demonstrated that the homeless community actually is it's a positive that it's it's making better spaces that are also feeling safer for them. There's more people and more activity, which which is making better spaces. And coupled with that is one of my colleagues 
ended up in a conversation with an individual who was collecting some food out of a garbage bin in the laneway and asked him about his experience with, with the laneway. And, and he shared a couple of stories. And one versus that he said that, that he thought it was really a great transformation because he said the quality of the food in the bins was better. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't our plan, but you can, you can, you can appreciate that if there's more people there and more, more food that's left behind that the quality has improved. Right. And so uh, for him, that was a benefit, but he also shared a story in that there was a, a school group, an elementary school group. The teacher had brought them into the laneway for one of their classes, and they were you know, using the basketball nets and, and what have you. And these kids got into a conversation with this homeless gentleman and asked him what it was like and why he lived on the street. Anyways, he, he expressed to, to my colleague that he felt it was incredible that if it wasn't for this place, that he never would have had the opportunity to talk to these kids, and they wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear from him as to what his life is all about. And again, that was a, a really unforeseen example, but really, I think a really powerful example of, of what's possible when, when you think differently about, about public space. I'm a true believer in the power of design. I've always been, but more recently in the last decade or so, thinking about how you can take some of the principles of design into environments or professions where it's not traditionally accepted or used and actually create a significant amount of utility and impact. And so I'd like to ask Daryl, what kind of space would you love to take your, your tools, techniques, and mindsets to that you haven't been able to yet to create transformation of a different kind? I'm curious. It's such a good question. You know, we're very fortunate. We get involved in a lot of really interesting projects. We're really motivated by public space. You know, we want to continue to be involved in laneway transformations. We'd like to do them in other places. We'd like to do them in, in other contexts. We're also really interested in what we see as a global trend around informal play and activity in, in public space. And we've been learning from what we've seen in various other places in the world and bringing those ideas back really interested in exploring hybridity, the sort of the boundary between indoor and outdoor and, and formal and informal and structured and unstructured. There's so much innovation possible and so much happening really at the boundary of that. We're moving away from, from structured activity and ordered systems into more user-directed, self-directed and informal systems. And you see this represented in so many different ways. And that's where the innovation is, isn't that shift? We're finding so many different ways to apply that in our, whether it be a school project or a community center or, or a library or all these sort of public building types are, are, are merging and becoming something different. To answer the question a little bit more more directly, we'd like to continue to explore what that means for public space, indoor and outdoor, in the built environment. But we're also really interested in, in what that might mean in other design disciplines. And what might that mean for the communication side of our practice? And what might that mean for how we host conversations with communities? Is it possible for you to say, oh, because we have the artists in residence and because we've got the curiosity labs and because we've got these community collaborations and these projects, I can also see a direct link to some of the more traditional projects we're working on. We were able to do X in community center Y because we did this other thing. Do you think there's a line? Unquestionably, there's a line between these sort of non-traditional things we're doing and what it's meant in our traditional work. You know, we're, we're very fortunate. We've got some wonderful clients that, that push us 
to think differently as well, and that are very open to experimentation. And, and they're seeing that curiosity and they're seeing that willingness to think differently and encouraging us to, to apply that to their projects. And again, I think when you can demonstrate the benefit of overlaying different types of creative inputs, unquestionably, our clients are seeing the benefit of that and are asking for that. I know that you've been doing a lot of work around decolonization. The conversation that often comes up outside of this kind of context is, A, I don't really understand what you mean. What is decolonization? How can that possibly be a thing? You can't go back in time. And then the other maybe sometimes unstated, but definitely felt piece of pushback is, yeah, I'm not giving up what I've got. You know, I'm not leaving. Explain decolonization for me. And even more so to me as, <laughs> as a U.S. citizen, I'm a little like, what is decolonization? And yeah, so. Yeah. And why, why should I care? Why should Rob care? about decolonization. Decolonization for us is is an emerging really emerging an important issue for us to come to terms with as a firm and it is a controversial subject matter and a really delicate subject matter for so many reasons and you know there's no one clear definition of what that means and I think everyone has to find their own comfort place within it. For us, it doesn't mean that we all, you know, all of us that come from a sort of settler background are to leave. That's not the solution. But we do have a responsibility to recognize the past. Do we recognize the injustices and the violence that has been perpetrated over a number of generations and come to terms with what that means? It's not unique to Canada. You know, there's many countries that have a, a colonial history, including the United States. Other members of the of Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand are dealing with the issues of, of decolonization as well. In many respects, New Zealand is, is ahead of the curve in terms of coming to terms with what this means. But here in Canada, there's a number of drivers that are really causing this to be a current conversation. And in no particular order, you know, we've got the legacy of, of the residential schools and the impact of, of that that had and those policies had on First Nations within Canada. And we've got our, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and the recommendations that came out of that that really cause us to take stock and to think, what should we be doing to be better allies and to and to respond to our responsibilities, you know we're seeing things like in the, our British Columbia government re- recently endorsed the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which again is another really important conversation of, about how we should be moving forward more positively. There's just so many reasons why this is an important conversation. Now it becomes even more important for us as architects. We're quite used to now, at least in Canada, and I know this happens in Australia and New Zealand and, and other places as well, that before we start a public meeting, there'll be a, a land acknowledgement and there'll be an acknowledgement of the, the peoples that came before and, and, and that are still here. We've looked at that and you think we're very quick to acknowledge that we live on unceded territory and we're very poor at thinking about what the implications of that are. Mm. When you're an architect or a planner or a landscaper, whatever it might be, and your day job is building on unceded territory, you have to recognize that that is a continuation and, a, and, a, and an ongoing form of, of colonial violence. And that doesn't mean we have, we're going to stop building our communities, and, but it does mean something. I don't know exactly what it means. We don't know yet, but we do know that we need to ask ourselves those uncomfortable questions and we need to find a way to move forward and, and to think, okay, how should we behave differently in our work? 
how should we approach our work differently? How should we host conversations differently? Who do we need to include in our processes and in what manner to be more respectful and to be more understanding and, and to come to terms with, with all of that? It's a huge question. And we're just scratching the surface and trying to find a way forward. Another aspect that I think is really important on the issue of decolonization is recently came across a, a quote, and I'm going to get it wrong because I don't remember the exact quote, but there's a professor in the U.S. called, her name is Adrian Parr. I believe she's at the University of Texas, Arlington. She writes a lot on water issues. Read a quote from her that really talked about how we're not going to come to terms with the climate crisis until we come to terms with decolonization. And I think it's such an important perspective that she raises. And because really what what I took from that and my understanding of what is meant by that is that in that context, decolonization is, is re coming to terms with our relationship with the land in a very different way and not thinking of the land as something we own is for there for us to consume, but to think of it as something that we, we have an obligation and a responsibility to be stewards of and to be good stewards of. I also think that decolonization is directly connected into the whole issue of, of the climate and, and sustainability and the, and the climate crisis you know, all of these issues really come together. And I just want to thank you so much, Daryl, for taking the time to talk to us today. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get something out of that that's useful. Before we thank our episode and contributing sponsors, I want to encourage you, our lovely listeners, to stay tuned for this episode's Positive Turbulence Moment, coming up in about 20 seconds. First off, a big thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book, and dare I say, the Frank Lloyd Wright of Positive Turbulence. If you're a small or medium-sized digital product company in Seattle or Vancouver and are looking for that bump to get you over the hump, check out nextwaveinnovation.io. They are masters at learning who you are, crafting smart, effective strategies, and helping your business grow. That's nextwaveinnovation.io. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. Here's our positive turbulence moment where Daryl leaves us with a few words to encourage us to consider our social impact. We are really committed to maximizing our social impact through our work, through the work we do, through how we do our work, and through how we behave as a company. And, and so for us, all three of those in parallel are really important. When we think about the last of those three, how we behave as a company, being a good citizen, supporting others, looking really deeply at how we host conversations and how we engage the public, how we can leave a legacy and a capacity within a community through the processes. And, and that could be simply as simple as creating a community advisory group around a project that ultimately takes on a governance role. And that's an example of using a process to create capacity within a community. If you want to share a positive turbulence moment or otherwise comment on what you're hearing, please drop us a line at podcast at positiveturbulence.com. We welcome your thoughts. Be sure to tune in next episode when we'll be talking to Patty Streeper, executive coach and artist, where we'll explore the connections between art and leadership coaching. You can also head over to positiveturbulence.com to find out more about us, get a transcript of this episode, get links to the good work that HMCA is doing, learn about our wonderful sponsors, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading, watching, and listening to list. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.